Hello, and welcome back to the Brothers Book Club podcast. This is another solo episode. It's just Travis today with episode 37 of our Penguin Little Black Classics book review collection. If you're a first-time listener, we are currently in the midst of an 80-episode streak of book reviews on a collection, as I just mentioned, by Penguin, the publisher, of Classics of World Literature. These are small volumes, about 50 to 60 pages each, by a variety of authors, and it's been a pleasure so far to review them. And we're on to 37 today. We are covering Charles Dickens today, uh, truly canonized, sort of legendary author at this point, widely taught in schools, English-speaking schools, the world over, probably. Uh, He's kind of fallen out of favor in recent years, at least in American schools, from what I could tell, uh, being in education for a few years myself. Doesn't seem as widely read, but is definitely canonized and remembered, recognized as sort of a legendary figure. So I'll be covering some of his short stories today, um, two of them specifically from his first ever published works, I believe, which were called Sketches by Boz. That's the sort of collection I'm going to be sub-reviewing. There's, again, two short stories from that, The Penguin Collected, and then I'll be discussing today. If you've listened to recent episodes, specifically the last, I don't know, 15 to 17 episodes, I've been trying to play with different formats for each book review, just trying different things out and assessing the works and kind of playing with them in different ways, just flexing some creativity uh, while my brother of the Brothers Book Club title is away from the pod. And so I'm going to do that again today. Um, I'm going to begin in the most unconventional way, which is I'm just going to score this and review this right off the top. I think this is a one. If uh, Charles Dickens is as legendary as we are led to believe and needs to be remembered and canonized as thoroughly as he has been, um, I'm sure he has some must-read works, but I doubt they're from this set, Sketches by Boz. They certainly aren't the two short stories that I read. Um, they are, these are very missable and passable. There's just no reason I could think of overwhelmingly to read them or to seek them out. Um, for the pod, by the way, should have clarified this right away, a score of a one means just do not read this. You can easily just move on with your life, uh, contentedly knowing that you don't have to read these two short stories, or probably, like I said, the Sketches by Boz. I think when you read something from a time period like this, this, I think, Victorian Londonish era, so 1800s era, you get caught in this sort of odd middle ground of sorts where it doesn't have, I think some things in antiquity can have a, um, in a positive way, sort of an exotic draw where the, the foreignness of some of the cultural conventions and civilizations kind of draws someone in. Um, at least that's how I've always kind of felt where it's just so, it's so different as to be fascinating. Um, this doesn't really have that cause it's got some kind of modern touches and it's sort of, you know, m- modern ish. Uh, and so it doesn't have that draw. And then it also doesn't have the kind of pressing current day issues and passions that you'd want to engage with, you know, in sort of a 2020 lens. There's just, there's weren't issues in here or topics that I thought, oh yes, that's something that a, you know, a modern reader will connect with strongly. So I think on those two fronts, it just kind of falls flat. And I, I was hoping it would be one or the other, and it was neither. And though it did have some kind of social commentary and satire that was a bit humorous at times, it feels like this is another in a line of um, kind of subgroup uh, in the Penguin Classic so far, which we can say it doesn't rise above its time period oddities and peculiarities, I guess. You could frame it that way. Um, to me, I've reviewed those usually pretty um, poorly, meaning skip them. And I just think that it's a lot to ask of a reader to do additional research before diving into a work. I know that may sound, I don't know, 
maybe I'm uh, downplaying the willingness of modern readers to research before they dig into something, but in my experience, people who want a book recommendation don't also want to, to be a researcher at the same time or, or a kind of casual amateur academic, and so I think without that context, these wouldn't deliver much in terms of enjoyment or thought-provoking um, messages, images, thoughts. So with that said, this is again a one. I think you can pass on this. Now, that doesn't mean you should turn off the pod. I'm still going to review it and talk through and discuss some things. Hopefully I'll make it entertaining and fun. But I just figured with the format I'm doing today, it would make more sense to explain that up front. Now, last week I had a guest on for a supplemental podcast. I had a a friend of the pod, Amanda, on, and we did a a book club, which is a more analytical, thorough breakdown of a work, The Sorrows of Young Werther. Go check that out if you get a chance. It's a longer episode, our book clubs are, but I think it's worth it. We went in pretty deep on that one. And I briefly mentioned to her at the end of that pod that for the Stickens, I had this arrogant, silly idea of maybe editing it, and that would be the book review. Like, here are some edits, Charles Dickens. I, You know, again, the joke being, who am I to possibly edit someone so legendary in the canon? But I, that was kind of the joke idea, and I actually kind of just rolled with it and decided to make it a reality. That is the book review I'm going to go through today. I'm going to edit two of these short stories from the sketches by Boz, for Charles Dickens, free of charge, of course. This is um, editor's fee is going to be waived for this episode, so there you go. I think, though, and I admitted this a second ago, it is kind of an arrogant but silly premise. I think I've almost earned it. I've been editing young adult writers forever, meaning I was an English teacher and I'm currently a tutor still, and so I've been looking at and editing young people's writing forever. I, I truly do believe if you can edit you know, a middle schooler's writing effectively and get them to realize something, gosh, you could probably edit at any level, truly, if you can explain it in the simplest most clarifying terms that even a young person can understand, then why not Charles Dickens? I'm sure he would understand my edits just fine. I think, too, I was drawn to this format just because I didn't want to go in and just point out negative things about the work, and I thought that would be kind of a bland review, just slamming over and over, this sentence didn't work, or this paragraph was dull, whatever. So I thought the edits aspect would give it, I don't know, a little more creative flair, and it would help with the kind of rhetorical breakdown and analysis, which we like to do on the reviews and on the book clubs, too. So without further ado, let's jump in right away. The first edit I'm going to offer him is right on page one, right out of the gate. On page one, he describes a town called Great Wingleberry, uh, which the title of the short story is The Great Wingleberry Duel, and he describes it as, as follows, quote, Common belief is inclined to bestow the name upon a little hole at the end of a muddy lane about a couple of miles long, colonized by one wheelwright, four paupers, and a beer shop. But even this authority, slight as it is, must be regarded with extreme suspicion inasmuch as the inhabitants of the hole aforesaid concur in opining that it never had any name at all from the earliest ages down to the present day. All right, so here's my first edit, Charles Dickens. That's a classic overwrite right there. Now, granted... Certainly in the style and with the diction and vocabulary of the time, and a lot of these edits will be sort of modernized edits. I mean, that's my my social context is that, so that's all I can offer, really. But this is just a classic override. There's just so many phrases and words in here that don't propel me and don't engage me. They, they kind of, I think there's some light satire and comedy in here, too, just kind of dunking for a, there's a 2020 slang term, but just sort of like critiquing this town and trying to make it seem like a little hole-in-the-wall podunk place. And that's fine. It's a fine characterization of a place or, or setting establishment, but it's just, the wordiness 
causes people would cause people to tumble over that, and I don't think the message would be as clear as you'd like. So if you want your setting to seem drab, I think we could do it in a punchier way. And I, I think it's a that that phrase punchy is a note I often give to young people who are writing. There's no reason to elongate things unless you have a reason. If you want it to flow and, and be elongated your sentence or your clause, then just explain why, right? But otherwise, short and punchy can be way more effective. You know, you you have less risk of losing the reader if you keep your writing that way. So with all that said, here's my edit offer, and I, I whipped this up last night. I'm going to throw it out there. I just rewrote the quote to be, Most locals agreed that while an outsider could see and read the dilapidated Great Wingleberry sign outside the post office, it didn't mean much. They never found the town to be worth naming. And the second sentence, while again it could be edited, and that whole quote that I just made up could be edited, I think it's the it's the quick turn in the punchiness, and it is a bit more of a summary, I guess, in that respect, but I think in this case, when you have to balance between show and tell, it's another classic writer expression, you kind of want to tell some stuff to get to the showy stuff, and I don't think we need to show, you know, ten lines of detail, basically just establishing that this town is easily, easily forgotten and sort of drab. On to the second edit, then. This one comes from page nine, uh, where the story says, quote, Show the gentleman in, said the stranger lady, in reply to the foremost waiter's announcement. The gentleman was shown in accordingly. Then it goes on to say the lady rose from the sofa, and the, and the two characters interact, and they meet each other. Why is this transition here? What purpose is this serving? I don't understand this. It just feels like at times that Dickens has these, um, the analogy I'm, I'm making is kind of to a road trip, you know? It's like you know there's destinations you want to arrive at that excite you, and I think in this collection there were definitely moments, and there were plot points and characterization and moments and whatever that excited me and were were well done, intriguing, etc. But then there are these little detours along the way where you just think, why do I have to read this to get to that? You know, I know there's something good coming up. There must be, right? Why else would Dickens be so beloved unless there's some real gems in here? But I don't know. Some of the stops, like paragraphs like that, just bog you down. That you, They just make you wonder, why did I have to read that? Like, okay, she was shown in. Couldn't we just have moved directly into the exchange? It delays the banter on the same page that is just better. So why can't we just get to that more quickly, I guess? Maybe this is me, um, an impatient and ungrateful modern reader who doesn't want to savor the words. But what words are there to savor in those lines? I don't know. I just have to believe that sentences like that can be chopped down or cut out in favor of stories that propel things forward and that are more relevant to the the main plotting, characterization, details, and themes. And as I mentioned, there's some funny stuff even on that page, just a little bit, you know, a couple paragraphs later, there's a comment from her, um, from the woman that the mayor is meeting about how, you know, she chose to remarry a young man, because, and she has some witty comeback about like, well, would why would I marry an older man when I can have a young one? And th- so there's some kind of funny insights and, and characterization moments. Uh, my attempt would be just to cut that, and so my edit would look like the gentleman was shown in to immediately behold the lady, or immediately beheld the lady, who, rising from the sofa, appeared to him as a buxom, richly dressed female of 40, and that, those are his words, by the way, that's his exact characterization of her appearance, uh, very directly, and so I just cut that part out, basically, just throw me into the character interaction, it's the better part of that scene, and I don't know why we need that transition. I think, again, taken as a totality, obviously that one moment, this might sound like a petty edit, but as a totality of just syntactical choices, I don't think they 
I think they kind of bog the reader down a little bit at times. And you take something that's already going to be dense and kind of challenging for someone anyway and makes it even more so. So let's just cut it. Let's talk about the third edit then, third recommendation I have. This one's kind of an interesting one because it's less about... It is more about the story structure, not so much about specific word choice or syntax decisions. On page 19, and I think before that too in this story, they introduce a character named, and they only call him The Boots. Now, I didn't research this. If you listen to our pod, um, you'll know that our research department is light on funds. We'll do, I'll do some cursory Googling and you know, Wikipedia checking, but we're not a show that's meant to be thoroughly you know, academic or researched all the time. And so I didn't even look up what a boots was. From the story, you can basically just infer he's the the muscle, maybe even of the whole town, uh, kind of like a bodyguard or like a security guard, if not just for this tavern that this man is staying at or this public house. You know, he keeps a cane or a club on him, and he seems to be kind of a just like an enforcer for the for the city to use. And so on this page 19, he's having an interaction with the main character, Mr. Trot. And I just think the the Boots character overall needs a complete rework. Um, it's a cultural artifact that just needs an update, frankly. Like, I, again, I don't know what his precise role in the society is. Again, I can kind of infer what his, his job is, but I, even that I'm not certain about. On page 19, the, the Boots says, Madman, replied the Boots. Damn me, I think he is a madman with a vengeance. Listen to me, you unfortunate. Ah, would you? A slight tap on the head with the large stick as Mr. Trot made another move towards the bell handle. I caught you there, did I? And then Trot says, Spare my life, exclaimed Trot, raising his hands imploringly. Th- this is just not intimidating talk, all right? I think... Again, especially for a modern reader, we'd have to dramatically update the vibe and the energy of this Boots character. Uh, To me, if you want to go more modern muscle intimidator character, make him more brooding and just make him less talkative. The the Boots character is so talkative in these scenes and just kind of not in a taunting way. I mean, those words there weren't exactly directly taunting. It was more like he was pondering out aloud almost. It just didn't feel intense. I don't feel the intensity in that. So I think structurally, I make him talk way less. That's the first major edit. And then when you do have him interact or you do have his presence, uh, make it more, uh, not visceral, that word gets a little overabused these days. Make it more, I don't know, frightening in a way. My attempt at a rewrite is as follows. The brute, the boots grunted thusly, a forced chortle from deep within. Mr. Trot suspected an undigested lunch, judging by the bulge and girth of his midsection and his unsettlingly shifty position on the chair. And, you know, you could go on categorizing him or characterizing him as you'd want there. Mine was trying to keep up with a little bit of humor, because I think in this story, he's supposed to be a bit, I don't know, doofy or maybe even a little bit unintelligent. Uh, But, you know, you could also go with the more serious and stern, severe type character. Either way, I think less dialogue, the better for this character if you want him to seem like a menace who kind of has to trail or shadow this Trot character around. The fourth edit recommendation that I have is on a very similar note. It is on page 30 from a different story, so this is from the second short story in this uh, small collection. It's another bit of characterization. I'm going to read this entire quote just so you can get a, a sense of the... I don't know, the density of references and the flow of it. There are so many things in here that just would need to be changed, but I'll leave it up to you to decide until I jump in. This is the quote from 30. 
He was an Astley Cooperish Joe Miller, a practical joker, immensely popular with married ladies, and a general favorite with young men. He was always engaged in some pleasure excursion or other, and delighted in getting somebody into a scrape on such occasions. He could sing comic songs, imitate hackney coachmen and fowls, play airs on his chin, and execute concertos on the Jew's harp. He always ate, or it says always eat, but I think they mean ate. He always ate and drank most immoderately, and he was the bosom friend of Mr. Percy Noakes. He had a red face, a somewhat husky voice, and a tremendously loud laugh. Now, if you're, you know, being generous in reading this, I think that paragraph just perfectly establishes that character. I have no, you know, questions. I There's a touch of humor to it. There's also maybe a touch of... I don't know, I don't want to say just racism, but I don't know what Jew's harp means. I'm not sure if that's an actual instrument, or if that's just a reference to a type of instrument, and that that categorization, um, religious or cultural, just doesn't, I don't, as a modern reader, I don't even know what that meant, nor did I look it up. I just put a question mark next to it, and so I'll leave that up for you to research. But overall, that having been exempted, I think it's, you know, perfectly effective, but come on, how many of these references is someone going to understand? I didn't know who Ashley Cooper Joe Miller is. It just, good thing he followed up with a practical joker, immensely popular with married ladies. So kind of explaining yourself twice usually indicates that your first reference might not have been super clear. Uh, plays airs on his chin, execute concertos. These are just compliments that don't hold up today. Again, I think, you know, we could have the modern equivalents, and I'm not saying this whole book needs to be translated and updated for 2020, but those characterizations, I think, feel a little limp. And then, of course, the final sentence, you know, red face, husky voice, tremendously loud laugh. That's a a perfectly fine list sort of portrait of a person. But in that same section, he does rely on that list characterization a couple too many times, I think. I mean, again, a list is another edit I often give to middle school and high school writers. A list is very effective. It's a good summary, show, 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 but you don't always want to be doing that. While then, overall, it's kind of a lively portrait right there, kind of a lively portrayal that I think is, you know, pretty readable. There's just too many references, and I think it's a little dense for its own sake. My edits, and I didn't rewrite a specific one, but would include, maybe again, maybe more of a show, like, include some signs of being playful and maybe some infidelity, you know? I guess in a 2020 sense, it would be he's wearing certain clothes or appears a certain way, he's on dating apps or something, Um, talk about his hobbies or include some flirtatious dialogue. I think that could be a very easy way to just prove this. Have him make some of the jokes or include some of that, um, I think it says he impersonated Hackney speech and told comic songs or sang comic songs, throw some of those out there. Could be a more fun way for the reader to engage with the character. And I'm only realizing now, and realizing both that I misspoke earlier and that I don't want to go back and re-edit and re-record, earlier I said that the 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 listing and the kind of abusive listing characterization is show, show, show. It was the opposite. I meant to say, to, he's just telling us, he's, you know, basically when I say that and any writers out there are probably cringing, being like, oh, we all know what that means, but that essentially means do you want to display the traits directly and like give an example or do you want to just summarize it that's show would be here's an example you can infer it or figure it out tell would be i'm just going to tell you so anyway so that's just an example of telling maybe a bit too much though again effective the final and um, fifth edit that i have for mr charles dickens here comes from page 40 um, near the end of that same short story that i just read from which was called the steam excursion by the way i didn't mention that before 
and it comes probably as his weakest moment of just writing. Um, this is probably the easiest edit I could give in the entire collection. On that page, he, a character says, How do you do, dear? said the Mrs. Briggs to the Mrs. Taunton. And then in parentheses, it says, The word dear among girls is frequently synonymous with wretch. I mean, why, is my simple question. Why do you have to explain your comedy or your, I don't know, I don't think that's a satire moment, but I think it builds to that. Like, if he's if he's making commentary against this kind of arbitrary social division and this social class of these fam- or clash of these families, if you have to explain things like that, then who benefits from that? I mean, I guess an ignorant reader, not... And I don't mean that word in such a negative connotative way, but someone who just wasn't aware, like, oh, that that's, you know, it's kind of the equivalent of somebody using a sarcastic term now. I know down here in the South, I mean down here, people often use bless your heart in that way. My roommate taught me that. My roommate who grew up in Georgia and Tennessee says, you know, if anyone ever says bless your heart, they don't mean it. They're taking, they're making fun of you and they're teasing you as a fool. And so... You know, and it's helpful for you to build up the cultural and social context and explain that, but I still find moments like this so bizarre in terms of of a story. If you have to explain things like that, then you probably shouldn't include it. I mean, this is true of comedy more broadly, right? People always say if you have to explain the joke, then the joke has already failed. It was ill-timed or ill-delivered or ill-considered or something. Something didn't go well if you have to (laughs) explain it. And yes, it's challenging then to include humorous moments, and it's a thin line, to be sure. But hey, I mean, you have to try, and try sincerely. I think explaining yourself like this just feels very amateurish. It reminds me of how in... You see this a lot in middle school writing, I think, or I have seen it more in middle school writing, the amount of explicit um, kind of transitions and explanation, which, as I say the words explicit and explanation together, you might be thinking, well, of course, that's what it should be. But the the setups can be so, like, just gougingly explicit where they say something like, and now I'm going to tell you about it. And you just think, you don't have to be that direct about it. You can just transition or you can just establish something and leave it up to the reader to infer these little moments, these little pockets. This reminded me of that, where I just thought, gosh, you really had to explain that? Like, I I knew these characters hated each other, so I immediately assume everything they say is backhanded, and now you go and explain it to me? It just feels, I don't know, it feels like you're kind of just wading through instead of smoothly experiencing the story. In a kind of weird, ironic twist, of course, it's kind of this moment, right, in the parentheses, it's kind of just what the story would need for a 2020 reader who's very casual and is thinking, I want to pick this up and read it. I don't want to research anything, no background. I don't want to know anything about the historical period or anything. It's kind of what they would need, maybe, where it's just you're explaining cultural things and um, historical aspects of the story. But I think, again, it would just bog it down and eventually it would make no sense to the reader to be included in the narrative. With all that said, my example edit for this is so simple. You just got to cut that part out. There's no need to explain it in that manner to the reader. If you'd like, include some more dialogue and banter back and forth between the characters, which he does, by the way. That story, the steam excursion, I enjoyed a lot of the kind of characterization moments. Thought it was, you know, pretty humorous at times, since it's kind of a rivalry story between all these families, especially these two families. Um, But you just don't need moments like that. I think it adds, again, density to something that is already going to be pretty dense for someone to read. And that was my fifth and final edit for Charles Dickens. I I will not presume to have any more advice for someone so revered. Uh, That was a fun exercise, though. I hope you enjoyed listening to it, too. And I hope, again, that those 
kind of served as a preview of the style. I thought that the quotes were pretty representative in that way, and that hopefully the thoughts and edits gave you ideas of what I liked and just disliked about reading it and sort of the style of Charles Dickens in these stories. Maybe go pick up uh, Tale of Two Cities or something if you're really fiending for Charles Dickens' writing and you're curious, though that was another novel I started and never finished. It was one of those college, uh, I should probably read this classic, huh? And then I just gave up on it. As for a quick preview of next week, we have episode 38 coming up, and I think I say next week, I'm posting this one on Monday, and I'm going to post that one on Friday. Um, Since we didn't quite hit our mark last week, I'm going to double up this week. So this week, Friday, I'll be covering a Herman Melville collection. I think it's a short story and then an excerpt from something. I think there's some poems, Um, but it's called The Maldive Shark. Herman Melville is an author I know a bit from poetry readings, and then, like everyone else, I kind of pretended to read Moby Dick and then really didn't. Um, I know my cousin has, so maybe I'll send him an email and see if he wants to hop on as a guest uh, or something like that, but yeah, um, that's who we're covering next week as a review. You can follow us on Instagram under The Stumped. That's the name of our feed. Uh, We post weekly updates. We post pictures that I draw just to accompany the podcast and put some art with the talking, which I think goes well. Please recommend us to your friends and family and loved ones. Uh, Rate and review us, etc. We appreciate that, and we appreciate you sticking with us and listening. And until next week, we will see you between the classics. (laughs) ¶¶